Welcome to the Evolved Caveman Podcast. I am Dr. John, the guide for your heroic journey towards greater health, success, and most importantly, happiness. And now, on with the show. Hi, this is Dr. John, and I am thrilled to announce that Jory and I are opening up our retreat in beautiful Costa Rica from September 28th of 2024 to October 5th. Everyone wants fulfilling relationships. The hard part is love is not enough. So many factors can get in the way preventing ongoing connection, intimacy, and aligned growth. All healthy relationships start within. But when we have unresolved stuff, it can easily interfere with those we are seeking to be closest with. Whether you're in a long-term committed partnership or are single and are looking for love, this retreat will guide you in the heroic journey of healing yourself so that you can be open and available to cultivate the fulfilling relationships you desire and deserve. To find out more, visit joryrose.com slash retreats. That's J-O-R-E-E-R-O-S-E dot com slash retreats. Hey, everybody. This is Dr. John back with the latest episode of The Evolved Caveman. And today I'm excited to have with me Stephanie James. And I've been on Stephanie's podcast, Igniting the Spark with Stephanie James. And now she's on my podcast. And we've got a bunch of stuff to talk about, but let me give you her bio real quick. Stephanie is a seasoned psychotherapist and transformation coach, a dynamic public speaker, a published author, and filmmaker. And she delivers her message in a powerful way to help others find their own internal sparks break through limiting beliefs, and create an empowered life full of passion and possibility. Her new film, When Sparks Ignite, <laughs> when Sparks Ignite, hosts a highly reputable cast of international thought leaders and changemakers. Its powerful message is about how the challenges we face can actually become the match point that ignites something within us that becomes our gift to the world. And her latest book, Becoming Fierce, takes the reader through a compelling and dynamic journey to expand personal power, purge what doesn't serve, and design an authentic life that is deeply fulfilling. Stephanie has an unrelenting commitment and personal mission to bring as much love and healing to the world as possible, and her message is clear. Your healing matters. Stephanie, welcome. Good to see you again. Really good to see you, John. Thanks for having me on the show. So, uh, my pleasure. And and so, before we we started recording, we started talking about, we'd had some real difficulty scheduling this interview. And it was interesting because I was commenting that I've never had to reschedule an interview because of, well, we've rescheduled it twice because of a death in my family and a death in your family. And, you know, my son passed away two and a half months ago. Your father died a little over a year ago and you were struggling a little bit on his anniversary, the anniversary of his death. Can you, can you speak to that a little bit? And let's talk about you know, how do, how do therapists handle grief? Yeah. You know, um, so really interestingly, I hadn't spoken to my father in six years. I think that's probably one of the important pieces to Mm -hmm. note in this. And even though I hadn't, I absolutely felt clear and clean and that I had left our relationship in a really good place um, where I had done my work. I had really written him a letter that said, thank you for all these things you've done for me. And because of a lot of dynamics, you know, if you, when you read my book, Becoming Fierce, that that's one of the first things it talks about um, is, you know, the kind of the effect of the role my father played through my life. Regardless, you know, the last line of, of that letter to he and my stepmother were, you know, I love you both dearly. 
and please don't contact me again. So I had been through for years, even in relationship with him, John, the grief journey. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I didn't really have him as the incredible father he was in my life from 13 years old on. Wow. So, so we had this very interesting dynamic relationship. Also, he was a psychotherapist, a psychologist in Austin. Wow. Yeah, he and my mother both. So, so it's it. I always say my father was my greatest love and the greatest wound in my life. Mm. So it's interesting. You know, my husband says, "Oh, you know how how beautiful that you can be so naive." That I thought I've really dealt with our relationship. You know, I really feel clear and clean. I, for six years, just, you know, I had great memories of my father. I can speak so positively. And even through those years when things were hard, I had beautiful conversations with him and he's such a wise man. I learned a lot from him, you know, my whole life. So he said, if you didn't know, you didn't, you know, have a relationship with your dad, you'd think everything was great because you speak so highly of him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I guess John, I share all that. Yeah, yeah. I felt so. Thank you for the context because that's important. Yeah, Yeah, it is because when when um, he had this last stroke a year ago um, in December, I thought, you know what, I'm I'm okay with this. I'm really at peace. And then I am telling you, for twelve nights right before he died, and right afterwards, I dreamt of him every night. He was Mm. in my dreams every night. And I felt gutted. The grief that came in was so huge. And there was a and this whole was nother level. Passed. This is before he passed. Okay. And then afterwards, I mean, it was, I know, you know, my husband who's really, uh, you know, he's, as you know, a chiropractor and a high performance coach, but he's also this shamanic practitioner and really spiritual mm-hmm. dude. And And he says to me, it's going to be interesting to see how your relationship is with your dad now. Uh-huh. And so it's, it has taken on an interesting turn, but wow, was I unprepared for that gutting that there was still this very deep level, excuse me, level of grieving mm-hmm. that needed to happen. So what happened at the year anniversary? So yeah, so this is so this is interesting because I because I haven't this... gotten to the year anniversary part. So I'm like, yeah, oh shit, what do yeah. I have to look forward to? Yeah. Well, again, it's interesting. So a week before the anniversary date was December 6th. And again, I start having these dreams where my father's showing up. And they're not even necessarily really meaningful dreams. Sometimes he would show up and we just play cribbage together, you know, which was something he had taught me as a young girl. And you know, we just have conversations or he just pop up as a cameo for a few moments. But it was really interesting because it was really present in my, you know, and he was really present in my consciousness. Yeah. Um, and honestly, John, that week before his anniversary, I truly, truly missed him. Mm-hmm. I just missed him. And I, you know, I really looked for, as I always have, you know, what were the golden threads of our relationship, even through, you know, what, what had happened as I grew up. And just to provide one more note Please. of context for this, um, I was 100% a daddy's girl growing up. 
you know? And so the first 13 years of my life, I was literally my father's little shadow. So it was like, that has a sting to it for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So if, if he was out, you know, gathering leaves, I was there holding the bag. If he was, this is, this is true for years and years as a little girl, when he would shave in the morning, I would sit on his little Mm. counter and he'd put shaving cream all over my face. And I used to shave it with his little plastic toothbrush holder, (laughs) but it had a little edge to it. So, I mean, I just wanted to be near him. Um, And we had, I mean, he taught me how to fish at four years old. I was his little hiking buddy. You know, I mean, it was just, we really had, and I had this golden, beautiful childhood that Mm. in one night was completely shattered and irreversibly broken at 13 when I woke up to the sound of screeching tires going out of the driveway. Mm. And my mom was trying to get out of the driveway and my dad's jumping on the car and pounding on the windshield. And he had just told my mother he was in love with another woman and that he'd been having an affair for the last year. Mm. And so this whole like beautiful childhood, it truly it was completely shattered. And very shortly after that, I had a stepmother who made it very clear, even though I loved and adored her, that she considered me the other woman. And so I was no wow. longer from that point on allowed to speak to my father alone to spend time with him alone. And until the day he died, I was not allowed to speak to him on the phone without her being present. Wow. So, you know, I think had I grown up, John, not having a close father, those first 13 years, I would have been like, okay, um, this, you know, this is how it is. But to go from that level of connection and Mm -hmm. closeness to feeling like, oh my gosh, what is happening? Um, you know, and, and really some, some insult to injury when they moved to Austin from Fort Collins, where I lived when I was 16 and I chose to stay here because I'd grown up here Mm -hmm. and my father didn't speak to me for a year. So that's that to kind of flesh that Mm -hmm. out. It wasn't that, you know, I was this big rebel or we had, you know, a lot of internal conflict. It was really just this breaking apart of, this incredible relationship. It, it almost sounds like it wasn't your choice to a large extent. Oh, 100%. It was out of your control. It was out of my control during during my life, during my lifetime. Because it's interesting. I've So I'm divorced. I have four kids. I don't know how to state that anymore because I have three living kids, one yeah. deceased child. Um, and you know, two of my children are alienated from me. My oldest daughter, who's now an LCSW, so she's a social worker. And we were very close for the first 14 years. And then the divorce happened. She kind of chose sides and never spoke to her again. And I've reached out to her dozens of times and just no response. Wow. And so, you know, interesting because, so it's not really my choice, but I've had to make peace with it. Yeah. Yeah, really interesting parallel experience, uh-huh. you know, in this in this flip-flop. So let me ask you this. How did you deal with your grief? Because I, I think it's a really interesting question of how do professionals in mental health mm-hmm. deal with something as powerful and primal as grief? You know, the the most important thing for me along my grief journey with my father was going, of course, to my own therapy mm-hmm. and getting EMDR. You know, I had EMDR 
about that night when everything exploded to go from well, it's such a traumatic a close memory. Family. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I and I think um, diving into my own growth, you know, I, I think part of the way I dealt with grief all along is that I knew it had to be this inside job. I couldn't find something out here to fix it for mm-hmm. me. And let me tell you, Which I just frustrating. You know, through my 20s, I yeah. tried. And then finally in my 30s, kind of came to this realization of like, oh my God, it's it's gotta be an internal job. And so, you know, with this latest grief, um, you know, part of it, John, was talking and talking and talking about it um to my partner. And thank God he is so, you know, he's so there. And that I could mm-hmm. just do that like ugly crying and just, uh-huh. you know, um be in it. And so when you do the ugly cry with him, I'm assuming that you do not feel judged by him about that. Is that correct? No. Yeah. He is. He is. That's a, that's a key component. I I believe it's, you know, if you have someone that you can trust enough to show all your grief to, for them to witness that grief, I think is, is important because part of it is, you know, I think the emotion itself is overwhelming and powerful and really difficult and painful. And yet we really get stuck when we start to judge ourselves for feeling the emotions and thinking we shouldn't feel this or we shouldn't feel it for this long or we shouldn't be angry or we shouldn't be this sad. And the other piece that I've realized in my own grief is that it's really important to work to radically accept this new reality, that the person you love is no longer here, no longer present, at least in their you know five-layer meat sack anymore. I, I believe the energy has is still present. It's just changed forms. Um, and, and so I think also the other part of it is what we believe about the afterlife also enters into this. I, I, I really appreciate your context too about your relationship with your dad, because I think the relationship that you have with the person that passes away also plays a big role in your grief. So in other words, were you at peace with this relationship? Do you have any regrets? Were you alienated? Were you at odds? All that factors in. Right. Yeah. And I think it does 100%. And I think part of what added to the grief, John, at the very end for me too, was my brother was there in Austin with him in the hospital. And he was basically just being kept alive at that point on machines. And my brother, for some reason, decided to tell me, he said, you know, Steph, I don't know why, but for the last six years, Every time dad called me, he asked about you and told me to tell you he loved you, but I never did. He never did. He had never told me that. And only later when I was really having feelings about it and and confronted my brother again around this, he said, you know, I didn't want to be in the middle. You know, he needed to call you and tell you that he needed to reach out. And and so yeah. I get it. Understandable. But yeah, yeah. And and I guess for me, that was part of the grief is that knowing that dad actually felt that way, I was like, I just want to tell him I love him. I just yeah. want to be able to say, I, dad, I know. Yeah. And I did know he loved me, but to be so able to say that. What are your beliefs about the afterlife or what happens after death in terms of continuing to communicate with him? Yeah, absolutely. I I believe, like you said, that energy goes on, mm-hmm. and and I I know it. I feel like through those dreams, that was a part of it. 
I had a very um, bizarre situation happen truly right after he passed. I was, yeah, yeah. It's giving me the chills already. I, I was sitting in my office and my, my office that I was in is up high. So I had this big window and I literally had a client sitting in front of me and she was sitting in front of that picture window and behind there is an alley. And I had never even noticed that there was this telephone pole in the middle of the alley. I just wouldn't have thought of it. All of a sudden, this huge, I mean, huge, this is downtown Fort Collins, you know, um, hawk. Like, I thought it was an owl at first. It was so huge. And it comes and it perches on that telephone pole and it's just looking directly at me. And I'm like, so the woman's doing EMDR, so her eyes are closed. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm, I'm really trying to focus, but that thing is there for like five minutes, does not move, and is just looking at me. And so I said, you're just a minute. And I literally had my phone because I was using it for a counter. And I, I had to take a picture of it. I had to know like, wow, this is real. And what's so interesting is the next day, I was like, okay, so as you know, this is the beginning of December. I'm like, I'm going to get, I want to get... um Christmas decorations. I like to get personalized ones. So I go on to Etsy to look for something for my husband. And the first, uh, <laughs> this is giving me the chills. The first ornament that pops up, and of course I have this, I bought this, was this huge hawk carved out of wood. And the words say, I will always be with you. Wow. I am not kidding. So do you use hawks as a symbol for communication with your dad? Now I do. Oh my you, gosh. I mean, you better believe. I mean, I, I think that's yeah. one of the ways to go, right? Is I choose to believe that there's certain ways that my son Brett is trying to communicate with me. And and if I can share a story of my own, I'd love I've, to. I have heard yeah. these stories almost every time somebody has a loved one that dies. But I was, it was um I think about 15 days after his death and I was up really early in the morning, like four in the morning and I was having my coffee and eating my peanut butter toast, which is what I normally do. (laughs) And so nobody's up. The house is dark. It's totally quiet. And I heard something and I thought, Oh, my daughter opened her bedroom door to let the dog out. And then I felt a bump on my chair. Like the chair moved slightly and I was like, Oh, and I looked down and there's no dog. And the dog's asleep in my daughter's room. And I'm like, that's not an earthquake. An earthquake doesn't just move one chair. And the dog wouldn't be big enough to move this chair. And so then I, my thought was like, oh, hi, Brett. What's yeah. up? Yeah. I hear you. I feel you. And, and it's, it's interesting to me because I don't think, I don't think we can have confirmation on a lot of these beliefs, at least not yet. And I, I think it's a big, one of the big ideas is choose the interpretation that serves you best. I mean, I have a couple of clients with death anxiety and they're really, really scared about their own death or death of loved ones. And I think part of it is getting them to choose to have some beliefs that bring them some ease and some calm about what happens after death. I mean, to the extent we believe that 
all we are is this five layer meat sack. And once we die, the light goes out and you're gone forever is kind of a scary thought, which I don't choose. I choose not to believe because it doesn't serve me. Yes. Yeah. And, and I, I am with you and I will tell you, um, I had a situation happen when my daughter, who's now 35, was four years old, that changed my life forever. And I do write about that in, in my book as well, because it was so profound. She was four years old. My aunt, Gwen, had just gotten diagnosed with terminal cancer. She already had had breast cancer for five years. And they went to go do this exploratory surgery. And it was just everywhere. It had just, she didn't, she hadn't done chemo. She had tried to do all these holistic ways of dealing mm. with it. And so it had just spread. And at that time, they literally were saying, she's got probably three months. So I get this phone call and I'm literally, I'm actually in the bathtub with a portaphone at the time. And we didn't have cell phones. That was a while, the, well back yeah, then, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, she's 35 now, right? Yeah, so 31 yeah. years ago, I'm on the big portaphone. And I hang up and I'm in the bathroom. I'm still in the bathtub and I'm just crying. And my daughter, now really interesting, little Acacia, her name is Acacia. And Acacia is the Greek word for immortality. Hmm. So the tree of life is the Acacia tree. Oh, is it really? Um, That's the tree the giraffes eat too, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Acacia, sharp needles. Yep. And yeah. it, these big green leaves. So yeah. she, So she comes in and she sits on the tub and she's like, why are you crying, mama? And I said, oh, sweetheart, you know, mama just doesn't want anyone to die. And she looks at me and she's like, it, it was so interesting, just totally out of her character. She looks at me and she goes, well, mama, we never die. And I said, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, someone said something to her, like we weren't religious. We didn't talk about God or heaven, but I said, yeah, I know, sweetheart, you know, people, you know, we, we go to heaven. And she looks at me and she says, mom. There's no heaven. Uh -huh. She said, when I was in the sky with God, when I was a light, this is what she says, when I was mm. a light in the sky with God, and then she pauses and she says, do you remember your other mother, Dorothy? Now here's John where it's like, I have no explanation for this. My other mother, as she phrased it, Dorothy was my grandmother who died when I was 13. My other mother, Dorothy. Wow, so you that had a was her name. Traumas at thirteen. Yeah, yeah, thirteen was a big year. Sorry about but that. <laughs> no, yeah, it's all good. But but at, so um, interestingly, uh, and Acacia didn't know her, you know, because my grandfather mm -hmm. married a year yeah. later. Never met her. I didn't have any pictures of her. We didn't talk about her. Grandma Seal was who my grandfather had married, and that's who she knew. Yeah. And so she said, you know, Mom, your other mother, Dorothy. Her light was in the sky with me. And so God put some of her light in me and I got to come down and be your daughter. Wow. So riddle yeah, I, me that, you know. I, I think it, it makes me think of the movie Soul by Disney, the yes, animated movie. Yes. I, I think that is pretty close to what I believe. You know, there's some similarities there. And, and it's interesting um, that a cartoon really encapsulates my afterlife beliefs. <laughs> oh, but I so get it. I saw that <laughs> Not too. Not sure you know? how shallow that is. But anyway, um, <laughs> so let me ask you this. So yeah. thank you for sharing all that. I appreciate it. And one of your themes is 
the biggest challenge, the biggest hurt, the biggest trauma in your life is also the greatest treasure you have to share with the world. Tell me a little bit about that idea. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like that has been true over and over again because it had, you know, and you, and you can think about this for you um, in your own life, you know, and I think, you know, the listeners, oftentimes it is, it's those hard times that really break us open. You know, I think of Elizabeth Lesser's book, Broken Open. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, difficult times that help us grow. And that that truly was the case here. And, you know, as I was saying, it wasn't until I was in my early 30s, I went to this uh, healing school, the Sufi school, actually, in mm-hmm. San Francisco for a week. And while I was there, I met the presenter, you know, on the way in, shook his hand. And he was one of those people, like, he's looking into your eyes, like, he is looking into your soul, mm-hmm. you know? And I'm, like, like kind of trying to pull my hand away as he's shaking it for a long time. And he's in, he's up on stage. There's only about 40 of us students there, but he's up on stage. And, like, a fourth of the way through his talk, he says, hey, you, in the blue coat, I have a message for you. And I'm, like, looking around everywhere, you know? And I look down, I'm like, oh shit, I'm the one in the blue coat. And and so he he says, what you need to hear is, and he says, Blob, I can't hear him. Like he says something, but I can't hear him. And you know how I was saying it like before we got on the air that like when something amazing is gonna happen, like there's this interesting inner resistance, like mm-hmm how we were not able to schedule our podcast together or, you know, things like that happen. Well, he says it again and I still can't hear him. And people are starting to laugh, you know, and people are like, he's like, my dear, obviously you have a lot of resistance to this message. It's like, what I'm trying to say is, and literally at that moment, all the air conditioning units in the place come on and nobody can hear him. So people are just laughing and he's like, okay, come up here, (laughs) you know, like get up here. And when I finally go up and I sit on this little step beside the stage, he says, my dear, what I am trying to tell you is stop trying. Oh yeah. Stop trying because you've been trying so hard to be perfect Mm -hmm. for your husband and your father. How he knew Uh that. I have no idea. Yeah. Like stop trying all the love all the strength, all the wisdom, everything you're looking for is right there inside yourself. Yeah. Is that the people-pleasing curse? I don't even know if it was the people-pleasing curse. It was the, I'm trying to fill what doesn't feel good inside of me. So I'm going to keep doing the next best thing. I'm going to you know, keep putting myself through school. I'm going to keep going through whatever class and achieve this. Yeah. And if I only look good enough and have the right house and have the right car, I'm going to be happy. Well, yeah, I think I tried to achieve my way out of depression when I was, you know, 17. If I, if I'm achieving all over the place, like how could I possibly be sad? Well, and I'm curious for you, John. So how did you deal with that? How did you come to that? Oh, I think I realized at 17 that we were fed a bullshit story by society that, you know, we work hard, get good grades, get into a great college, get a good job, eventually get married get promoted, make a lot of money, retire at 65, and then we'll be happy. And, you know, I was someone that felt deeply and, you know, to be a a young man in the man box, that's 
difficult, although I think most men are like that. Um, in fact, there's research that supports that. Um, and so I got into psychology pretty early in an effort to study more about emotions and became an emotion geek and really worked hard at facing my own demons, mostly emotional demons, anxiety, depression. Um, I think there was some anger at the end of my marriage and really went right after those and ultimately became as authentic and transparent as I could. And, and just stepped out of that, that rat race, hedonic treadmill mentality, realizing that it's about enjoying the journey. Happiness is about enjoying the journey, not so much about, you know, getting to the destination or the goal of that next achievement, because we know that we'll adapt to that in a matter of minutes or weeks. And usually most men I talk to will get a huge, you know, they get a promotion to senior VP. And then five seconds later, they're like, okay, what's next? But they've spent three years trying to get to that title. Right. And you know, Is I that the recipe for happiness? I don't think so. No, I don't think so. And I and I remember listening to a podcast with and I, I don't I don't listen to rap, so I didn't know the rap star, but I, I was fascinated because this rap star was sharing that his most depressed moment was when he got his third platinum album. Mm. Because exactly what you're saying, There's he had set it up afterwards. that I'm yeah. gonna be happy. Finally, I'm going to be successful. I'm going to be happy. And the realization that that didn't fix it, mm -hmm. he, he plummeted. And so, and, and like you, John, I feel like that moment for me, you know, there in San Francisco was such a catalyst of going like, okay, now it's this inside job that the wounding then, I mean, partially, I feel like I'm a, you know, a very effective clinician because I've been gutted. I've mm -hmm. felt it, you know, I, I have been to a lot of those deep, dark places. And so the capacity to hold that and to be with that, then that becomes like we were saying, you know, that gift to the world. And I do believe that, you know, from that moment, and, and there were several um, that continued to be like through that pain. I had someone in my, my family um, try to commit suicide three times. And very, very serious attempts. But from that, and, and that was 18 years ago, I said, I'm not going to keep working as a counselor in the school district. I went to grad school to be in private practice. Mm -hmm. And that moment, you know, after this third attempt and literally hitting my knees, you know, just like, oh my God, you know, life is so precious. What do we want to do? From that pain, became this beautiful and fulfilling 17-year practice, which so many amazing things have sprung from yeah. in my life. Yeah. And I, I really like the idea, which you mentioned earlier, which is basically, you know, cracking open due to trauma or difficulty. There's an idea by a philosopher, Jacques Derrida, who said that what we really need for true kind of exponential growth is a radical shattering of our framework. And, you know, I think Difficulty and trauma does just that. And, and we know from research that one of the ways to move from post-traumatic stress to post-traumatic growth is simply to ask, what am I supposed to learn from this? And so if you can reframe it as a learning opportunity, and I, I mean, I did, you know, I went through a really contentious divorce about 14, 15 years ago, and it was brutal and, and not by my choice. And, you know, after a while, um, I learned to be grateful for it because it taught me 
excellent emotional management skills. It taught me how difficult it is for some people to go through divorce and how nasty and cantankerous it can be, but doesn't have to be. Um, and and I so I think anything like that, to the extent we can flip it, and, and sometimes there's some time involved there. It doesn't happen right away. But I think that's the goal. What yeah. do you think? No, absolutely. Absolutely. I I got this really awesome journal for this year called The Artist of Life. And the I've heard that. It's it's so cool, John. The the first yeah. part of it is like you're looking back over 2023, and that's part of what you're looking at is like what worked, what didn't, what were the highlights and accomplishments, and what were the life lessons. So that you really have that opportunity to go back and go, wow, you know, yeah, this thing was really hard, but maybe I found inner courage or inner strength I didn't know I had, or maybe I learned that I I could really step into my voice and I wasn't mm-hmm. gonna be silent anymore, or whatever, you know, whatever it is for each individual. Um, and how important that is, I think that reflection is just key yeah. then in moving forward in our lives. And how can we keep I, I love it? One of the questions too, the prompts is what habits are working and what habits mm. do you, you know, aren't working? That's a good question. Um, yeah. And then what do I want to start incorporating into my life? What new habits do I want to develop so that we're really moving forward? And, you know, and I do think, I, I guess I want to circle back around to something that you said earlier, which was when you were talking about, you know, the grief journey, how important it is to be with our feelings and be with whatever comes up. And I feel like that is an essential part of everything that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Because when you're talking about how do we get the life lessons or how do we move forward, we got to feel it. Mm-hmm. And we might not be able to, like you said, get the life lesson when we're in the heart of the mess, so to right. speak. Um, but to be able to know like, Okay, not necessarily people don't always like that phrase like okay, this is happening for a reason because when you're in great pain there's like there's no, no freaking reason why this is happening, yeah. right? Um and that there is something essential that I mean I do feel like we're here to evolve and grow. And not always are the lessons comfortable. Our growth edge mm-hmm. is rarely comfortable. No, not at all. And that's why I think we need we need the pain in many regards, because it forces us to grow. Because if we're comfortable, it's too easy to want to remain comfortable and not grow. And and I think, you know, a lot of people do that. I think that there's this cycle in relationships, friendships, where, you know, we love someone and we get hurt, which is inevitable. And then we close up and wall off. And then the the trick is to, as soon as you can, to open back up again to the possibility of loving, to repair. And that cycle is just repeated ad nauseum throughout your life. And, and I see so many people that just stay stuck in that walled off position because like, fuck it, I got hurt. I'm not doing that again. And I, I get that for a period of time. I think the challenge is not to do it permanently. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that at some point, what feels like protection becomes a prison. Mm-hmm. And so well, the yeah, then you're yeah. alone and disconnected, which is not a way to happiness. Right. I mean, we're, we're all interconnected beings. And I love, and to me, it's not just a thought, it's the reality that love is unlimited. 
Mm-hmm. It's not like we have this finite supply. And so we only get to experience it in this little increment. So if this relationship failed, I'm sorry, that was your quotient of love. You're done. Uh-huh. You know, I, I just don't believe that. And so on that note, do you believe in a soulmate? Like, is there one person that you're supposed to fall in love with? And if you don't meet that person, you're screwed? No, I don't. I, I believe that we have soul mates, plural. Um, you know, I I remember the late, great Wayne Dyer mm-hmm. would talk about that we had soul contracts mm-hmm. with people. And, you know, Marianne Williamson would say, you know, back in her book, The Return to Love, I mean, this is, you know, 30 years ago too. Yeah. I'm dating myself here, but, you know, that we're with people for a reason, a season, or a lifetime. And I truly believe that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think the calling of our soul is to love, period. And so we experience I, I that in so many different also. ways. But in, but in that too, and I agree, but that growth, that growth and evolution, I think, is loving ourselves. That there's mm. there's something that as we and do that, love others, yeah. yeah, yeah, loving self. Well, I would say it's a little bit harder for most, for sure. Um, so, huh, I lost my train of thought there. Well, and really quickly to your point Please. on it's really hard to love ourselves. I think it's so important because you know people say things like, "Oh, just love yourself, be your own best friend," and it's like, as you and I both know it's not easy and uh-uh. it's not something you just flip a switch and like, Oh, I'm, I'm all in love with me. So it takes like cultivating that relationship with you. It literally is like building a muscle. And yeah. for me, John, the, the biggest way to do that is learning how to show up for ourselves. And because we've let ourselves down. I mean, you can think how many times I say, I'm going to do this diet and do this exercise routine. I'm going to start meditating. And then we don't. And so to start cultivating little daily habits, things that you, you're accountable to no one but you for. Mm-hmm. And honestly, one of the things that my clients love and I get like really cool feedback about is I have them do a wall calendar that they can see so that when they show up for themselves, so they're showing up for a relationship with them, which is you keep your promise to you. You say, okay, in the morning, I'm going to do my gratitudes. I'm going to go for a walk. I mean, it doesn't have to be unreasonable mm-hmm. things you want to do. But then instead of at the end of the day, instead of crossing that day out, you put a heart on it. Oh, I like it. And so my clients come back and they're like, oh my God, it's so cool to look back on this month. And there's all these hearts there. I literally even have a client who color codes her hearts because she's like, if I went swimming that day, they're blue. If I went hiking that day, they're green. But she's like, it feels so good because I can see myself building that relationship with me. Yeah, I, I love that because I think you know one of the themes that I've been talking about with clients probably last year was self care, and you know how so many of us are on this unsustainable treadmill of trying to please and meet the needs of everybody else around us, and we completely neglect our own needs and the boundaries that we need and the self love. And it's just not a sustainable model. It like you're going to get tapped out, exhausted, stressed, burned out, sick. Uh, inflammation is going to you know run mm-hmm. rampant in your body. There's all sorts of problems with it. But we were, I think, most of us were taught growing up that it's selfish to put yourself first. Any yeah. thoughts on that? Oh yeah, 
I mean, again, absolutely. I feel like everyone I speak to and I say, okay, part of your job is to work on you being a priority in your own life. You, you see the recoil because mm-hmm. we all were taught that. I remember when you know, I, was, I was an angsty teenager and my mom would say, instead of worrying about yourself, go up. We, had a, we literally had a nursing home that was up the hill from our house. And she's like, go there. And, you know, and I, I would read for blind people. You know, like get out of your own head, do something for somebody else. And of course, well, that is yes, a, a good strategy. It's a good strategy. And but you like don't want to overgeneralize that. Right. When all of a sudden it's like, oh, it's not okay for me to take care of myself. Instead, mm-hmm. if I take care of someone else, then I'm okay. And again, I mean, of course we want to contribute that. And that's why I say your period healing period matters, period. Mm-hmm. Because as we heal, we actually do become clearer conduits for more love and joy and healing to come into the world, we can actually serve so much better because we really were, we're, we've got this reservoir from which to serve from. So let me ask you this This is a little bit of a detour, but was there a point in your life when, so do you have a PhD or master's? Master's. Was your master's, how science-based was it? It was clinical psychology. So how, scientific or data-driven were you early on? Oh. Versus spiritual. Oh, I I think actually even then I was spiritual, to be honest. Okay. I'm just curious because I was, you know, at getting a PhD at UC Berkeley, it's incredibly scientifically backed, data-driven, empirical research up the wazoo. And, you know, I came out of there really believing that science was the only lens through which you could view reality. And it took me some undoing, some unlearning to realize that science is a great lens, a great framework, but it can't explain everything. And it's slow to catch up to a lot of truths. And, and I, it's interesting to me because I think traditionally for the last hundred years, scientists, MDs have had a hard time speaking about their spiritual peace because there was such this schism between science and spirituality. And I, it's interesting to me to see in the last, I don't know, 20 years that that's kind of healing. Absolutely. I, I, I see that too. And I remember being really excited about that, you know, psychology mm-hmm. and spirituality merging and actually yeah. backing up one another. And um, so, I, I, yeah, I find that really fascinating. I guess even though, you know, I would say like, one of the highlights in the last six years was getting to go and be a part of a training group at Stanford University with one of my old gurus, you know, my hero, David Burns, not the oh, lead yeah, singer yeah. of Talking Heads, but yes. <laughs> one, of the, one, of, one of the fathers of cognitive CBT. behavioral psychology. Yeah. yeah. And I'd had him on my show a few Wasn't times. Wasn't that the Feeling Good handbook? Yep. Feeling We're Good. Like one of the most, feeling good. one of the best-selling books of all time, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And his book, Feeling Good Together, literally saved my brother and sister-in-law's marriage. You know, so I had these really deep connections to him. He'd been on the show a few times and then invited me out to Stanford, um, where I got to be a part of his podcast and then also be a part of this super cool, intense training group. And, you know, and that was my orientation for my thesis and in grad school was around CBT. I really believe in it. Mm-hmm. But even then being with him, you know, I, I felt like um, 
things that I learned in that, I, I have to tell you, the one thing that I always take away from that experience was his saying to this whole group, and it was intense, John. I mean, it was like, I was there with like 42 other psychologists and you're given a case and you present it, you give your diagnosis and then what you would do CBT-wise to address it. Mm. Very intense. And then David, you know, would would grade you literally Critique out loud it. in front yeah. of the class. So Ouch. it was really intense. And I thought it was really beautiful. But one of the things he said is, you know, we all, and he used this term, which I thought was great. We all relapse every day. You're going to relapse into whatever those limiting beliefs are, whatever those you know wounds may be. It's how quickly you get yourself out of that. Mm-hmm. And I think when I first started as a therapist, you know, uh, 17 years ago, I would have taken everything he said as gospel. And that's all that I focused mm-hmm. on was, and I was much, the clinician that I was, was much more serious, I guess I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was something really beautiful for me in his humanness, not that he was necessarily spiritual, but that he really gave people permission, like, you're going to be who you are. Life is messy. And so what we have to do is, is learn these ways to get out of it. And I think what I've done since then is really myself, as I've learned things from Bruce Lipton or Joe Dispenza or mm-hmm. um, you know some of these different people, um, I had Bruce on my show and being able to merge science and spirituality and psychology, like that's the trifecta, man. That's <laughs> yeah. Well, and Joe's bringing in quantum physics, and you know that's which I love as well. But you know, I, I going back to Burns, I I love Burns' work. I think CBT is an incredibly powerful framework, and I was in love with it coming out of Cal because Cal was all about you know thinking. It, there was very little about emotion there. However, I also believe strongly with Antonio Damasio, the neuro researcher who says, we are not thinking beings who feel, we are feeling beings that think, understating the primacy of emotion. And I, cognitive behavioral therapy, in my opinion, downplays the role of emotion. It does. I mean, it can be a very, in a way, safe framework. If you remember mm-hmm. that simple triangle from cognitive behavioral therapy 101, which mm-hmm. is you know, our feeling, our thoughts connect to our feelings, connect to our actions, and then that triangle repeats itself. Well, it doesn't emphasize feelings very much. Mm-mm. You know, well, our thoughts are like what's driving saying, everything. You know, thoughts are what drive emotion always. Yeah. Yeah. Now, maybe that's an overstatement, but that was kind of my understanding. Um, and I, I think it can go both ways. And I, I, there's sometimes when thoughts don't drive emotions, when emotions just are. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I think it was really important work. Um, so listen, I'm, I'm aware of time and I know we have to wrap up now. So just do me a favor and comment on, tell us a little bit about your movie and your latest book, if you would. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I've been really thrilled, John, because the end of December, uh, my film, which has been on Plex Network on the More You channel for a year, was also picked up by uh, Neil Donald Walsh and Steve Farrell's organization called Humanities Team. 
Congratulations. Thank you. I mean, it's it's such an honor to be on that platform. So now I'm on Humanity Stream Plus, that film is. And that film truly is about so much of what we talked about. It's about raising consciousness. It's about how as we heal, we do become like the pebble in the pond. Mm-hmm. And those concentric circles of healing come out from us. So um, I like the pardon me for interrupting. I like yeah. the idea of Ted Lasso. Where Ted, if you, I don't know if you're familiar with the show, yeah. but in the opening, in the intro, he's sitting in the bleachers and the bleachers around him change colors. The seats change colors. And the idea there behind the show is that by being himself, by being authentic, he changes people around him simply by being him. And I love that love idea. I think it's the it. same as what you're talking about. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it really is. And, and that kind of lends into my book, Becoming Fierce. And people will say, well, what does fierce mean? Well, fierce is literally that fiery energy. It's not being aggressive um, or mean. It's literally about being that authentic light, that spark that is us and being in fuller expression in the world. So yeah, you've yeah. Sorry, you've got a fire theme going through all your material. Is are you a fire type in Ayurvedic medicine? Uh, I am. <laughs> That's interesting. Just a, just a guess. I'm a pitta pitta. Yeah. <laughs> Mega pitta. Um, and, I am also. Oh, are you? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I can tell. <laughs> and I would say, you know, my whole brand around the spark comes from what I truly believe is that spark that is our essence. Mm-hmm. That is the part that's still alive in your son and my dad. It's that part of us that cannot be extinguished. And sometimes it feels like it gets covered up with situations or circumstances. And then our work is, how do we excavate it? Because mm-hmm. it is always there. And when we let that part of us shine, that's, that's why I say, you know, together we can ignite the world. I mean, we illuminate the world with those sparks. Yeah. And I, I love the idea of, you know, raising consciousness around us. I, I think it's never been more needed than now. Yeah. The essential so time the is now. Thank you. Thank you, John. And thank you for being on the show. And briefly, where can they find your your latest book? So it's available Barnes & Noble, Amazon, any any bookstore. Okay. Um, yeah. And they can find out any information about events or books or uh, the film at my website, which is stephaniejames.world. And there will be a link to that in the show notes, as well as a link to the preview of the film. Oh, cool. Wonderful. Thank you, So thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. I'm glad we finally got this scheduled and got it knocked out. (laughs) It was a true pleasure. It was for me as well. Thank you. And that's it for this episode of The Evolved Caveman. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this episode, please feel free to like, rate, review, and share. If you didn't like it, you don't have to do a damn thing. Thanks so much. I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Evolved Caveman Podcast. If you like what you've heard, support us by subscribing, leaving reviews, and sharing the podcast with friends and colleagues. For the latest, most powerful tools to connect with like-minded men, join the Facebook group at The Evolved Caveman. Follow Dr. John on Instagram at The Evolved Caveman, all one word, or join the email list by visiting guidetoself.com. 